Hello, hello everyone. Nice to see you. Um, disclaimer, warning. Uh, it's been a little while since I last preached, and that last time was a little while off the previous one, so it's been a sort of few months with one sermon. And a preacher is a bit like an inbox. You can silence it as much as you like. It still fills up. And then when you open it, there's a lot. So poor Shan like, got a scripture from me late yesterday. Now I'm told her I'm not going to use it. There's a lot that I want to try and get through. The reason for the disclaimer is that as much as I've tried to trim a few things out, there is quite a lot that I'm burdened to share with you uh, today. And so just be warned, I'd, I'm going to rather try and cover more uh, than just shortchange you, but this is probably not going to be a good sermon to sort of check WhatsApps during. Uh, if it's going to make sense, and that's a big if anyway, it definitely won't if you sort of zone out at any point. So, so do your best to stick with me. The conversation is about confidence, right? How to be confident. You want to be confident? We're going to try and make you confident. Uh, and confident in a sustainable, reliable way, not in a way that is fickle, not a kind of confidence that is at the mercy of variables outside of your control. That's what we want. Uh, and so last week, Matt was starting to talk about this idea that could it be possible that we could, even in a desert, still be that, that oasis? You know, like even when all facts seem to be to the contrary, we still get to be a people that are flowing with life, confident in something reliable. And I, I suppose as a bit of a philosopher, go, okay, cool, but like, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that really mean? Like, practically, how do we be that? And so that's what uh, we're going to try to get to. I have a suspicion that in the Western church particularly, We've taken some things that are very good and godly and critical, but we've overemphasized them. And we're getting too much of our confidence out of things that, yes, God has promised, but we're basing our entire confidence on these things that are actually God had never intended for us to have our full confidence in them. Okay? And I'm not trying to rubbish anything in particular or bash any kind of church. Not at all. There are no perfect churches. All churches cause pain. This is not about that. This is about me and you, Christians relying on things from God, which I suspect he didn't actually ever want us to rely on that much. And the problem with this, as you can imagine, is if God has said he is reliable, and then I'm trying to rely on him for a certain thing, which he never intended for me to rely on that much, I'm going to get the impression at some point that he's not, right? He's gonna, he is going to let me down if I'm trusting him for the wrong things even if they're good godly things, even if they're part of the Christianity package, but they're not supposed to be the ultimate. If I make that thing in God the ultimate, I can get stuck. I will be less cryptic in a second. Now, one of the important things for all Christians to get your head around, that probably the big challenge for all of us in our hearts, is that you were designed to be beloved. You are the beloved. You are designed to be loved. This is so hard. We're so predisposed to thinking we have to earn it, we can lose it, we're either worthy of it or not, we have to hide, perform. You just are loved. You are called the beloved. And on top of that, you're called blessed. You are blessed. And probably our whole life is a journey into this mystery of I am actually just loved. I actually just am blessed. Psalm 1 starts with the word blessed. Psalm 2 ends with the word blessed. And I'll show you in a second. Those are the two Psalms that are basically supposed to cue you how to pray. Every time you pray, every time the Israelites prayed, they were intended to enter through the gates of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 to prep them. And they start with, you're blessed. And they end with, you're blessed. Get it in your head. You're blessed. Until you've got that, you're not ready to pray. Until you've got that idea, you're not ready to talk to God. If you're not convinced that you are loved and blessed, 
you've still got some pre-praying to do, right? But here's the thing. For me, I don't know about for you, but for me, how I know that I'm blessed or how I know that I'm loved tends to be through the exact same variables that the world is offering. I don't know if I'm blessed unless I have health, wealth, or popularity, right? Generally speaking, this is the mistake I want us to try and get out of. Ah, I have the new car. God loves me. Ah, I was healed. I am blessed. Ah, I got the whatever end result I was hoping for. That's evidence of my blessedness. Please hear. You will experience the goodness of God in the land of the living. God is not allergic to using the variables of the world at all. All the good things on earth he designed. All the good things on earth he loves to give to his people. But it does worry me if the only way I know God is blessed, is blessing me, is via the very same things that the world is working through, these very same variables that are so fickle, how confident can I ever really be? The same with the belovedness thing. How, is there a way for me to know that I'm loved by God? Is there another language I can speak other than the language that the world speaks already? Is there a way he can tell me how much he loves me? Is there a way he can prove to me how much he loves me? Is there a way that he can show me how blessed I am? Is there a way he can communicate those blessings to me that isn't reliant on the language the world speaks already, the language of possessions, the language of provision, the language of fact, the language of power, the language of results? Because if, those, if that's the language that God has to speak to me through, and in fact, he's saying, no, I have this other far more intimate language that I want to speak to you with. I don't want to have to work only through the same variables that the world is selling. I want to be able to talk directly to your heart. That's where I want you to get your confidence in my love, your confidence in my blessing. I want to speak to you in this language, but all I've trained myself how to do is talk in this language and expect it to be in the shape of health, wealth, provision, promotion, popularity, facts, winning arguments, progress. If that's the language I'm expecting to speak, and again, God has promised to bless his people, to work through that stuff, but not exclusively. This is why Paul the Apostle says, I've learned how to be content with much and with little. We're not very good at being wealthy and we're not very good at being poor. And you as a Christian are empowered to be able to do both well. But if my whole confidence in God loves me, God is for me, is based on the movement of this variable, my bank balance, my popularity, my prospects, then I wouldn't be surprised. In fact, it is my experience and my conviction that God will deliberately go a little quiet on that stuff, disappoint you on that stuff, to coax you into the other language. And church tradition, I think particularly there are three, there are many versions of this, but some Western Christian tradition elevates truth. Okay? Now, stick with me, because some of you, particularly if you're wired like me, it's, like, but it's the truth that will set you free, right? This is about truth. Truth is the most important thing. And churches that, and Christians that elevate truth, that is where I get my confidence. I will be confident if my theology is accurate. I will be confident if I am right. I will be confident if I've got the facts and the information about God as precise as possible. That way of thinking, firstly, reduces the Word of God, which is supposed to be living and active and is supposed to go into your heart and change you. It reduces it to source texts for arguments. Because I'll be confident if I can win the argument. And then Christians do that irritating thing that they do, and they obsess about, well, is 
the pandemic spiritual or physical? Does it need a faith response or a vaccine response? And it's like, those are really worthwhile questions, but they're not the ultimate question. What about infant baptism, for or against? What about the sovereignty of God, for or against? How do you get saved? And it's like, Christians who make truth the ultimate thing end up less confident, don't they? Because you're only as confident as the last argument you've won. And what if it turns out there was something about God you had slightly wrong? What if it turns out your theology wasn't perfect? Friends, everyone in the Bible, with the exception of Jesus, had imperfect theology. Everyone in the Bible had some stuff wrong. The great, wonderful, intimate relationships with God are not based on, well, you've got to get every single detail absolutely right. Your confidence is based on truth. Truth is hugely important. It's not the ultimate. Other churches, other Christians, make power, miraculous interventions, the thing they get their confidence in God from. I experienced him. I saw him do this. I saw this progress. I saw this. Again, not wrong. Part of what God is promising. We are to live by the Spirit and expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Absolutely. But the great heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, you know how that starts? I mean, talking about all the legends who had epic faith and saw great None of them saw what they were expecting to see in their lifetime. None of them. So the thing God has called you to have faith for, the massive miracle you're trusting for, the thing you're trying to build out of pure spiritual power that the world is not ready for, if it doesn't succeed, is there still a way for you to know that God loves you and has blessed you? Or are you a hostage to that result? That the power must come the way you expected it. The miracle must happen the way you expected it. The hand of God must do what you expected it to do. And if he doesn't, if he's late, if there's other stuff going on, if there's variables you don't understand in the spiritual realm, your confidence gets shaken. Again, we're called to attempt great things for God, expect great things for God. But I am interested. Is there a way for me to have absolute confidence in his love for me and his blessing over me that is not hostage to that end result of what his power did or didn't do? So I don't want to be part of this truth is the ultimate and we're going to argue and make the Bible academic. I don't want to be part of this power is the ultimate and we're going to speak in the language of power and we're going to try and manipulate God to do what we want or unlock the correct prayer code that gets the vending machine to do the thing. Like, No, no, because then I'm going to, my confidence is going to be rocked. Third tradition that I see often in our case is around fruit and results. Now again, fruit Hugely important. God promises you will bear much fruit. So we're not talking about evil things. But if I make fruit in my life or fruit in my ministry, the ultimate evidence that God is with me, you're in great danger, aren't you? The church is growing. We must be doing things right. My ministry is succeeding. God must be for me. Forget about those irritating passages like God causes rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Let's not deal with that. This must be because God is for me. That's why there's fruit and results. My business is growing. The people like me. My children sleep. Hey, it must be because I'm a legendary parent. No, it's not. That's not why they sleep. It's just because you are unbelievably lucky. Um, But again, God says you are to bear much fruit. We, of course, are to pay attention to fruit. But if your confidence in how much he loves you and how blessed you are is, well, look, there's fruit in my life. Then how confident are you ever really able to be? Because you're at the mercy of the very same things that the world is chasing and offering. Results. Is there another language that he can speak to us? Is there another more intimate way he can deal in our lives that can cause us to have great confidence? And so the thing, I believe, the answer to that question 
the way that we get that confidence is through this little phrase that you see in the Bible. So-and-so strengthened himself in the Lord. That's what I want to teach you how to do today, how to strengthen yourself in the Lord. There is a thing you can do. There's a language you can speak. There's a place you can go that will give you access to your belovedness and your blessedness, and it can be totally separate from the other variables in your life, which are still important, but are not supposed to be the ultimate. Okay? That's our assignment for the next 20 minutes. And you see this little phrase crop up in quite a few places. Let me just quote you three, because these are cool, three cool people to think about. King David is having a harrowing experience. And this will become more important later, but let's just remind ourselves, King David, not some superhuman spiritual athlete. Please, I know it sometimes suits us to make him, he was this great worship leader, he was this great prophet. Well, he was a shepherd who then spent time as a mercenary. That's his career training. And then ultimately became a politician who was at no stage ever a full-time Christian. Okay, he wasn't a priest. He wasn't a full-time prophet. He wasn't a wise man. Any of the, the supposedly sacred vocations available in his day, he didn't do any of them. He had a normal 95 like you or I. And in that situation, he had some quite insane experiences. So this is later on, he um, has gone from being a shepherd into being a mercenary. I mean, you may not know that at one stage he hired himself out to the Philistines. The Philistines. King David fought on behalf of the Philistines. Anyway, and um, he's been fired by the Philistines, and he's heading home to Ziklag, his town, uh, with his organization of um, warmongers. And they get back home, and the place has been sacked, burned to the ground, and all their families have been kidnapped and taken away by some dreadful people. And in that moment, like, again, so this is not some myth. This is a real person with moods, emotions, psychology, just like you. So how are you feeling in that moment? You get home, your house burned to the ground, your family kidnapped, who knows where, who knows what's happening to them. And to make matters worse, his whole organization starts blaming him. They're, they're like, we're done with you. You keep leading us into carnage. We, we want to stone you. We're, we're, gonna, we're holding you accountable for what's happened. So his guys, his team, his maybe one community that you might have had confidence in. That's another one that we like to use. Hey, well, I've got confidence in my community, my people, my tribe. Well, David's tribe was out to get him. Sketchy in the extreme. And there's, I mean, it's like he could, you could fold under pressure like that. Right? You could crack. Most of us, I think, would crack under pressure like that. And there's just a line, just a random throwaway in 1 Samuel 30. And David strengthened himself in the Lord. And then the next thing that happens is he rallies them together and he says, I'm not having any of this mutinous nonsense. And off they go and they sort things out and they get their families back. And, and he goes on from that point to become the king of Israel and to lead this wonderful although you'll see later, not completely without chaos. But like, he has this amazing life. What did David do in that moment? How did he strengthen himself in the Lord? What did he do? I want to know what that is, if that's the place where you can get confidence from, even when all the other variables are down the tubes. Jesus has this, again, harrowing moment. His cousin and best friend, John the Baptist, has just been executed. He gets that news. So again, Jesus became absolutely human, just like you or I. So insert your own psychology into that moment. How are you feeling when you get that news? So he tries to get away, to go and mourn, to go and process. Thousands come with him, demanding food and miracles. So he quickly feeds the 5,000. But actually, as much as he's kind and generous, he's still desperately trying to get away and mourn. Eventually, the crowd is satisfied enough. He sends them home, sends the disciples onto, you know, over the, the sea on, the, on a boat, gets away to be by himself and strengthens himself in the Lord. 
you know what he does after that? Walks on water. What happened in that moment? Okay, what goes on? And it's not just that moment. It's basically every morning of Jesus' life. He goes and strengthens himself in the Lord. You actually see the start at the beginning when he's tempted by Satan. It's that whole intense exchange. And after 40 days and 40 nights, the angels come and minister to him and strengthen him. And it seems like from that moment on, Jesus deliberately, even though he's God, even though he has access to every cheat code and every unfair advantage, he still has to religiously, and I use that word on purpose, go and strengthen himself in the Lord. The final one I want to tell you is one you know quite well. It comes out of Kings, 1 Kings 18, and it's Elijah, epic prophet. I mean, about as badass as a prophet can be. And he's just taken on the prophets of Baal. Fires come down from heaven, licked up the water in the trenches, chowed up the sacrifice. It's like unbelievable. He then just kills all these prophets. You can't make movies like this. And he's expecting, well, in the language of the world, the power happened. The results happened. Truth, I've been vindicated. I won the argument, right? And Jezebel's like, yeah, we're not interested. People of Israel are like, yeah, nice one. No change. No, wow, Elijah, you were right all along. We're all going to change. The whole nation repents and reforms. It's kind of like, yeah, nice one. And the new cycle continues. And as the emotional high wears off and he realizes, well, I traded in all the variables that the world likes to work in. I had more power. I had more truth. I had the results. He collapses into a pretty intense depressive episode um, and races all day across the plain of Jezreel um, where there's an epic military base now where the planes take off from an underground tunnel. It's very cool. Um, and runs like a full marathon all day and gets into the wilderness and sleeps under a broom tree. I don't know why the tree had to be named. God felt it was important. You knew that, so I'm just relaying the information. It was a broom tree. Um, lies down to die. He's done. Over it. Ready to fold. And the angel comes and interrupts him. And does very practical stuff. Eat this food, drink some water, and says, the journey is too much for you. Strengthen yourself. Friends, the journey is too much for you. You need to figure out how to strengthen yourself in the Lord. And the world is really divided up into those who know they're in trouble and those who are deluded, right? Those who know this is more than I can cope with. I can't pull this off on my own. That these variables that the world trades in are not enough. They're an illusion. Of course, healing and health is wonderful. Of course, beautiful community and relationship is wonderful. Of course, provision is glorious. This stuff is not evil. God is happy to work with it. But it's not reliable. The journey is too much for me. And if I want to live a life of meaning, if I want to reach out to and connect with God, if I want to find my purpose and passion, it's too much. You will burn out. You can't do it. You need to strengthen yourself, Elijah. And so he does. And then he heads up the mountain. And as I say, he's broken. He's despondent. He's irritated. He feels totally like he's in the right and the rest of the world's in the wrong. And so God says, well, why are you here? He says, well, I've been jealous and zealous, and, and he has this whole prepared speech, and God says, okay, wait, 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 I'm going to, can't talk to you like this right now. Come out and talk to me when I pass by the cave. And you know this, but I'm just going to read it anyway. So, first of all, there's this incredible wind, and it, it's so great and strong, it tears the mountain apart, it breaks the stones into pieces, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. I mean, now we're talking, right? Wind, students of the Bible will know. Holy Spirit, great 
representation of the Holy Spirit. God goes, this is my powerful spirit. But that's not the ultimate thing. Earthquake. I can move mountains, right? That's the language of faith. Epic faith to create great results. God moves mountains. Not interested. Fire. Judgment. Truth. Getting it right. This very same thing that for Elijah just produced the results back with the prophets of Baal. He must be keen on fire, right? Fire worked then. Not in the fire. So all your wonderful arguments, all your expectation of epic spiritual power, all your zeal, God is not in any of it. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him, whispering to him, and said, what are you doing here? He said, I've been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Woe is me. And before I tell you how God answers, or in fact doesn't answer, that accusation or that complaint, a whisper, that's interesting, right? You know, a whisper is just breath. To create a whisper, you leave your vocal cords still. You don't use those muscles. There's no vibration. It's literally just your breath impacting someone's eardrum and giving them just enough to figure out what it is you're saying. I'm saying, yeah, there are other languages we can speak. I can do power. I can win arguments. I can produce results, move mountains. But the thing you need is to get close enough to me to hear your whisper, right? I know this is the obvious interpretation of this passage, but just think about that for a second. Elijah, I want you to feel my breath hitting the side of your face. That's how close I want you to get. Only under those circumstances are you ready to really talk to me and really get strengthened. And then what does he say to Elijah? After Elijah quotes all the variables that the world deals with, the progress and the power and the truth and so on, God, you're supposed to deal in these terms. God says, yeah, I'm not actually that bothered by that stuff. Return. Go back. Go back to first principles. In fact, Elijah, nothing's changed. I've heard you about how unfair and nothing's changed. Original instruction still remains. Go back the way you've came. And when you arrive, you must anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Syria? Oh, yeah, Elijah, by the way, I've got stuff going on in other nations. You didn't even think we're part of the story. The story is so much bigger than you thought. I want you to anoint not an Israel king, not a Hebrew king. I've got stuff to do with Syria. I just want you to go over there, anoint this king um, to be king over Syria. And then Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you must anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Saphat, and some other guy, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. So not only do I want you to get on with a bigger story, I also want you to get on with a longer story. I want you to replace yourself. Think about succession. I need someone else to take over the reins from you. Oh, but it's failed. Oh, but it's just me. I don't really care that that's how you feel right now. I have a bigger story going on, and I have a longer story going on. And so anoint Elisha. And then God does guarantee, look, the one that Jehu doesn't kill, Elisha will kill. The one that Elisha doesn't kill, like, I will win. Don't worry. I will win. And the final thing that God says to him is, I'll also leave the 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed down to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, it's not just you. You're not alone. In fact, there are 7,000 others who are devoted to me who haven't started worshiping Baal. 
as alone as you might think you are, as exceptional as you might think you are, I've got other stuff going on. You're part of a bigger people and a bigger and longer story. All of which really helps Elijah, and he heads down the mountain, does all that stuff, and goes on to have a wonderful final few chapters of his career. But I find that amazing. That God says, first of all, look, just the journey's too much. Just sleep, eat, be strengthened. And then come close enough to me that you feel my whisper. You know God's name, Yahweh? It's just three letters, actually. Three sounds, basically. You, ha, ve, ha. They're breath sounds. This is who he is. He wants to whisper, and he wants the people who aren't so passionate about doing things for him, but who just want to be with him, who aren't so fascinated about getting answers from him, but just want to hear the sound of his voice, that aren't fixated on achieving something for him or turning into something, but just being in his presence. I'll be their God, and they will be my people. Don't stress about results so much. The world looks at the outside. God looks at the inside, and he wants to connect with you and strengthen you on the inside. The variables may or may not change. Like the Hebrews 11 heroes, you may see in your lifetime the thing you think he put in your heart. You may not. You may be like Elijah actually setting things up for Elisha, like Solomon actually setting things up for David. You might be setting things up for the next person. That's not the point. The point is, can we learn how to strengthen ourselves in the Lord? Because then you can be confident. Then you can say, it's well with my soul in any circumstance. Okay, so final little lap here. Again, how to actually do that? How to strengthen yourself in the Lord? Um, I want to take you to the Psalms because I've been trying to learn how to pray. And the thing that I've learned most chiefly of all is that you don't have to figure it out by yourself. You have been given the Psalms that the people of God have carefully curated and edited a prayer book for you, which the people of God have always used. And it kind of got codified and clarified in Babylon. So the people of God have been taken out of the promised land. Circumstances suck. They're in some featureless desert that only has a river to recommend it. And they've been thrust next to this river in this pagan land. And it's there where the conditions are least conducive that they learn how to pray. So prayer is not what happens best when you're in the perfect circumstances, when the kids are quiet, when the world is beautiful, when you're feeling very spiritual, that's not the time to start praying. If you wait for that moment, you never will. The people of Israel discovered in Babylon, in exile, in shame, in ignominy, in weakness, in a foreign place, that's where they learned how to pray best. And the first thing, because you, like me, are used to speaking in terms of results and facts and power and all that other stuff that we normally want God to deal with us in, they put Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 first, which are not really prayers. They're just like pre-prayers. They're just ways to get you ready. The first one is about a tree planted in some foreign land next to some foreign river that can still bear fruit. And the message is, you can be fruitful wherever you are. And so the idea is, every time you pray, you quickly go through the gates of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 first. Read Psalm 1, oh yes. I don't have to wait for conditions to be perfect. I can start praying right now. I can be fruitful right here. This can be a glorious moment, even in the lame dust of this lunch break at work, in this brief pause in the middle of this fight with my spouse, in the middle of this sin that I'm busy committing and I've not even yet got the faith to repent of, right in this place I can start to pray and I can be like a tree planted next to a stream. And then Psalm 2 gets you ready by going, oh yeah, and that big world that seems so powerful, those rulers and captains of industry who work in terms of power and fact, and why would you pray in a world like that? Well, Psalm 2 just reminds you, 
yeah, the rulers scheme, and they seem powerful, and God laughs at their plans because they've got nothing compared to his anointed, his sent one. He is so much more powerful, and those rulers, they actually better take a warning because God's story is so much bigger. And so you go, okay, I can be fruitful wherever I am. I can pray wherever I am. And it's worth doing because he's so much more powerful. And what those authors back then could never have known is that the ultimate anointed one, the ultimate Messiah, would have a very intimate relationship with a tree, wouldn't he? And die on it for your, your benefit. And so not only do I go, I can be fruitful wherever, and he's very powerful, but I look at those two Psalms together and I remember, and he also came and died on my behalf. He loves me like crazy. I'm allowed to pray to him. No matter whatever circumstances my own soul is in. And then you're ready for the first prayer. And that just happens on purpose to be Psalm 3. And all the Psalms have a little heading. And the heading is actually worth paying attention to. Not all. Many. Um, And this one starts with a heading. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Which is to say, friends, this prayer and every prayer happens in the middle of a story. That's okay. You don't have to... Divorce yourself from the story you're in, the struggle you're facing, the failure you've just done, and get into some holy Zen mode and pray only in very high, complicated Shakespearean English. It happens in the middle of a story. In this case, David is now king. His son, his own son, has done a coup against him, booted him out of office. David's on the run from his own family. And that story will end with his own son dying to David's great heartbreak. And so it's in that state that David prays this prayer. And this is the first, here's how to strengthen yourself in the Lord. Okay, Here's what Jesus would have done when he went away before walking on water. Here's what Elijah did when the angel came and sorted him out. Here's how to strengthen yourself in the Lord. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. The starting point for all prayer, and this one, is Help! This sucks! I need you! Not fancy, not I've dealt with my stuff, I've processed my unbelief, I've sorted out my doubts, and I'm coming to you, God, basically just to monologue at you about how spiritual I am. Not at all. The language of strengthening yourself in the Lord starts with, I need help! I, need, I don't like my circumstances, I don't like myself, I don't like my son right now, I don't know what to do, I need you. You know, that's how all language starts, right? The first word you uttered on this earth was, wow, this sucks, Ah, I need stuff. And then you kept on doing that. And the more complicated your needs became, the more sophisticated your language needed to become, right? So dogs don't need much. They need to say to one another whatever it is they say when they smell each other's butt. They need to say, you're back, you're back, you're back, you're back, every time you come home from work. And that's kind of it. Maybe something about walks and something about food. They don't need much language because they don't need much. Giraffes apparently need nothing because they don't speak. Dolphins have maybe slightly more complicated relationships and they have a slightly more sophisticated language. But you and I have this magnificently complicated language because we have these incredibly rich and satisfying relationships. The same applies to prayer. It's another language which starts with, ah, I need stuff. And God is so stoked with that. All language starts in the place of trouble and need and pain. And prayer can start in the same place. I was taught you're supposed to not only ask God for stuff. Like you're supposed to say that to some child. No, actually, you're not supposed to ask your parents for stuff. Well, humans are born not fully formed. If the child doesn't ask for stuff, it'll die. We could do with another three 
months or years in the womb before we come out, to be quite honest. We start needing others. We're not fully formed. Spiritually, it's the same. You don't start out fully formed. You start out needing stuff, and it is God's absolute joy to strengthen you. And so you ask, and he answers. And then you react to what he said, and you ask some more. So, ah, I need you. And that second verse, many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. The first thing you do, remove the word many, and in the blank, fit in whatever is busy telling your soul, there's no salvation for you. God, my disappointments are telling me there's no salvation for me. God, my distractions are telling me there's no salvation for me. God, that prophetic word you gave me, which I've been holding on to and doesn't seem to be coming true, is the thing that's making me wonder about my salvation. Fine, be honest about it. God, this sin that I can't kick that keeps making me feel guilty, this guilt is what's telling me, who do you think you are to expect salvation from God? Whatever it is, my anxiety, my inability to get my mood under control, all these other people talk about positivity and how great they are and I just can't get out of first gear. Whatever it is, you just bring it to God. Ah, cry it out. This thing is the enemy of my soul. And then, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Even as I'm cowed and crushed and broken, you're the lifter of my head. You're my glory. He's your glory. He's not just your sort of adjusted 52% pass. He's not your way of just sneaking in as a sinner saved by grace. He's your glory. He's the lifter of your head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Hooray. And so just like Elijah, this isn't fancy language, hey? Do you see this? Very simple language. I lay down and slept. I work again for the Lord sustained me. Prayer is supposed to be very earthy and human. Prayer is not supposed to be super spiritual and complicated. God, I'm scared. God, you helped me. You let me sleep. You gave me a good night's sleep. What a miracle. And I woke up, and yeah, these enemies are still, there are thousands of them, and they've set themselves against me all around. And now, because David seems to be like short-term amnesia, he starts again, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. It's like, didn't we deal with this already? For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Well, that's a bit unsavory. That's ugly language to put in the Bible. Don't miss what's going on here. If you're talking in the language of truth and fact, then you lay out your propositions, right? If you're talking in the language of power, then you make your case and you try to manipulate. If you're talking to God about end results, then you try and convince him how great this will be and you pitch to God and you try and vision cast to God why he should do the thing you're doing. None of that is what's going on here. This is intimate, raw language. I'm afraid. I trust you. I'm still afraid. I need to sleep. Please smash their teeth in. I hate those O's. And that kind of like slightly less logical, slightly more intimate language is how prayer is supposed to work and is how you strengthen yourself in the Lord. That's how it works. If you've ever listened to teenagers when they first fall in love and you listen to them on the phone, it doesn't make sense. Like you understand the words, but the meaning is far from you because they sort of speak in, in riddles. Oh, you're so great. Oh, you love me. Promise you'll never leave. And it's like it never really goes anywhere. They're not exchanging information. They're not making pictures. They're not like talk, because that's the language of intimacy. And unfortunately, we sort of know it as children, then we grow out of it, then we know it when we first fall in love, and then we grow out of it, and we work back with the language that the world speaks. But you were designed to talk in this 
kind of rhythmic, I love you, I'm scared of you, I trust you, where have you gone, why are you so quiet, the ticks didn't go blue, uh, but you're the only hope I have, where else could I possibly go, smash their teeth in. That's what prayer is supposed to sound like. And if you do that, remembering, of course, that you can pray in any circumstance, in any story. Psalm 1 teaches you that. The little heading, David's in the pit of his bad parenting and his child now trying to get him out of a job. You can pray in any circumstance. And you can pray because the anointed one of Psalm 2 is so powerful, hung on the tree of Psalm 1 to give you access. So you have that in your mind. You're moving towards the whisper. You're feeling his breath on your face. You're crying and declaring undying love and then complaining that he's nowhere and asking for all sorts of things you should never be asking of God. And at the end of that process, you get to say, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And even in that intensely selfish moment, prayer is never actually supposed to be a selfish thing. Because you're part of a people. And David gets there and goes, actually, God, yeah, I need some stuff. But would you bless your people? Would you turn us into something? Thank you that you're part of a bigger story. There are 7,000 who haven't knelt to Baal. There's millions around the world who love Jesus just as much as you. I'm part of a bigger story, and there's a kind of generosity that can start to flow out of you as you get out of your own self. So I don't want to just go to God for direction or information. I certainly don't want to go to God just to manipulate Him into doing what I want Him to do. I don't even want to go to Him for instructions about how to please Him, as glorious as that is. My starting mode is, God, I just want to hear your voice. I don't want your, your word just to be something that I can understand the truth of so I can make a good argument. I want it to pierce me. I want it to change me. So let's pray as we finish. Let's give, give ourselves a chance to be strengthened. To stop just talking about God, but actually to talk to Him. And to say the basic stuff. Help. Thank you. I trust you. I'm scared. As you prepare to pray, I just want to read you this thing from Eugene Peterson. It says, when we engage in the act of prayer, there's no preparing. There's no getting the right words. There's no right posture to take or mood to assume. We just do it. Prayer is primal speech. We don't first learn how to do it and then proceed to do it. We just do it, and in the doing, we find out what we're doing. And then we deepen and mature in it. Oh Lord, how many of my foes is the first sentence in the first prayer. Brief, urgent, frightened words. A person in trouble crying out to God for help. The language is personal, direct, desperate. This is the language of prayer. Men and women calling out of their trouble, their pain, their guilt, their doubt, their despair to God. So Lord, we just cry out to you. We don't want to be deluded into thinking that the variables that the world works with are enough for us to work with. But you don't look at the outside. You look at the inside. And your project is to prepare our souls to be with you for eternity. Not just to make our lives perfect. Our lives on earth are so brief in the light of the long-term thing you're doing with us. And so we want to learn to hear your voice. We want to learn to lift our voices to you. More than anything, we want to learn how to be strengthened in you. 
so that in much or in little, in peace or in trouble, we'd be able to say, it's well with my soul. I've been strengthened by the Lord. And you have given us this great privilege of being part of a community of that kind of strength. We don't just hang around like-minded individuals. We hang around people who are being strengthened by the living God. What good news for the world that we're here. Thank you, Jesus, so much for making yourself available like this. Amen.